Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Andrew Thomas, come on down to the Ocean Protect podcast. Yay! Hey, buddy. How's it going? Good, mate. Good. Just a bit of context, Andrew and I um, are good mates and uh, we see quite a lot of each other on Zoom. So uh, I'll let uh, Bradley Dalrymple pull him in, introduce him. Well, I don't know. This, this conversation could go anywhere and I think it actually probably will. But I do know... Uh, well, Andrew's uh, Vice President of Storm in New South Wales, but he's actually just, he's got about 20 years worth of experience in the stormwater and environmental sort of uh, engineering uh, industry, but he's actually um, just submitted his PhD after six, is it six years, Andrew? No, it was five years, roughly. Five years. I did take some time off to go back to work to pay a few bills. <laughs> so yeah, how, long, how, how long was it, mate, from start to finish? Well... I reckon about five and a half years. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that is a huge commitment. Like, and I'll, and now that you've sort of completed it, mind you, it's still in the review process. You're not officially a doctor. Have you enjoyed the process? Has it been worthwhile? Yeah, it was. I really liked doing a PhD. What I found interesting about it was it wasn't the PhD that was a challenge. It was everything else around it. Yeah. So I, I was trying to work while doing a full-time PhD, and I was convinced oh. that I could do that. And I found out very slowly but surely that I couldn't. So the last year I took off work completely to finish. And that's one of the reasons it took so long is because I was trying to work and, you know, as a consultant and, uh, and finish my PhD at the same time. And it just, my supervisor, Tim Fletcher, he advised me numerous times that I could, you couldn't do it and I just didn't believe him. But it turned out he was right. So I ended up taking a year off and writing it up. Yeah, and he would know. But why, why is that? Because I've heard this from a number of PhD students. Is it... Is it because just lack of, like reduced time when you are working or is it the headspace? I've heard you just need real major focus. When you're writing, and if you're doing writing that's really deep writing and it's, it's not um, something that you're doing from scratch, if you do three to four hours of that kind of writing per day, you're pretty much done in the sense that your brain's fried and the headspace matters as well. And so what was the topic? What, what is the official title of the PhD submission? Complex socio-technical problems, insights from the investigation of the maintenance of stormwater control measures in Melbourne. That's the full title. Mate, that's really an interesting title. What was the crux of it? What were you really trying to prove? Well, there was, there was actually three levels, yeah. The first level was to try and see 
if the anecdotal concerns about stormwater control measures, which is those wussed sort of stormwater stuff that's meant to augment or replace the conventional practices that damage waterways, was meant to find out, A, was there, uh, was there any truth to the concerns that stormwater control measures as an asset class were being under-maintained? The second was to try and find out why that might be the case. And the third was to, you know, to come up with solutions. But that last question uh, proved to be uh, somewhat interesting because when I started to investigate the reasons behind it, because we could show, not you, you could, I did, was able to demonstrate that stormwater control measures were under-maintained and more so than most other assets. Though stormwater assets themselves are not very well maintained for a range of reasons. But when I started to drill down into the reasons why, uh, there turned out to be a lot of them. And we ended up coming up with about 55 different reasons why, based on interviews with 54 professionals working in local government across eight councils in Melbourne. Mm. So what, what seems like a fairly simple question turned out to be something really quite complicated in terms of different types and a number of reasons why that stormwater control measures weren't being maintained very well. Before we go into the detail of this wonderful PhD, because I'm really keen to get the answers to actually these questions you sought to answer, I want I want the backstory. I want the uh, Andrew Begins story. I want the, the Andrew Origin story. So, Where were you born? I was born in Wollongong, but I spent most of my time on school holidays hanging down at Jervis Bay. You know, I got interested in environmental sort of stuff while I was down there in science. But really... I started off life because basically because my dad said that you know, being an environmental scientist wasn't a real job, so I had to go. <laughs> but keep in mind, like back in the day, and, and you would probably the same era as me, Andrew, maybe a little bit older, but like I, I know I was one of the first to qualify out of university with an environmental engineering degree yep. in one of the first years in Australia. And slightly before that was environmental science, but no one had any real idea what environmental science or environmental engineering was. <laughs> I can I can tell you this true story. My brother Julian, who's a long time listener of this show, G'day, mate. used to always be asking, "What does an environmental engineer do?" And I didn't know. And he he used to make up that maybe after graduation, I'll be able to tell people where to put portaloos, so portable toilets. You'd be like, beep beep beep, yeah, over there, fellas. He reckons that's what I would be qualified to do. So again, you know, environmental science, environmental engineering, like hippie degrees. Oh, shout out to Julian. Take us back. So you're, you're a young nipper. You're, you're growing up. Did you go to school in Wollongong? Wollongong High. Wollongong High, great. So you went from Wollongong High. What did you do? You go travelling? Did you go straight to uni? What's the story? I got a cadet with BHP and did an associate diploma in materials engineering. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> it was a good job. Paid well, but it just wasn't me. So after about 10 years of that, I decided, well, I went and worked for us. I moved into a job, another job in a smelter, and that was – that was the last straw. If you've ever worked in a smelter, it's got to be the dirtiest, horriblest place you'll ever come across. So I decided to go back to university and do an environmental science degree. And that went really well, really. That actually went quite well and um, really enjoyed that. It was water chemistry and stuff like that. So it was very, you know, still a, a, what they call the hard sciences, although I don't like that term. And then uh, got a job working at a few places, then Wollongong Council. And then my wife, she became a MP, like a member of parliament. She uh, thought she was going to be... Um, Power couple. Yeah, she thought she was going to help save the world, you know, or, you know, do something good. But she did one term of that and then decided that wasn't for her. And then we moved to uh, Mackay. And that's when I started doing consulting because she got a job up there. But the PhD came about because the mining boom ended in 2013. 
And you were in Mackay. Yeah, I was in Mackay. You're working as an environmental science, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was doing, How many uh, degrees did you have by this stage? Oh, okay. So we had the SAS diploma in materials, a bachelor's degree in environmental science with honours on that one. And then I'd also, while I was at Wollongong Council, I did a master's by research looking at the performance of a constructed wetland in the Illawarra. And, and I remember, Andrew, I think oh, that's when, around about when I met you because I was kind of giving a, a music modelling training course. Yes. I think in Sydney. And I think you were at Wollongong at the time or you're doing this wetland thesis topic. Yep. When I think I first met you. Yeah, that would have been it. I was. That's actually how I got into all this stuff. I had no idea what uh, what a sense of urban design was until someone, my, my manager at the time, came up to me and said, oh, do you want to go to the Stormwater 2008 New South Wales Conference? And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, it's this, this stuff. And I went, oh, okay, and off I went. And that's when I really started. That's what, that was the beginning. And then I went to your course. But when I went to Mackay, I also went into contaminated land and catchment management stuff. Mm, mm. So there's a whole lot there. So you're in Mackay, started the PhD, right. So how did you end up in Melbourne? Oh, well, that's because the mining boom ended yep. and my wife was a HR manager for a company that went that, that closed basically because of it and she had to get another job, so she lost a job. So uh, the family had to move down there and uh, I spent a year in between Mackay, Western Australia and Melbourne and after a year of that and having a young, uh, one of my son, my some was seven at the time, I thought, you know, this is not the way I want to do things. No. And then this opportunity for a PhD came up through uh, Melbourne Water. And um, I said, okay, I think I'll do that. Because it was, was fortuitous because I'd spent time at Wollongong Council doing a master's by research and looking at the performance of constructed wetlands and stuff. But I also did asset management for them while I was there in their stormwater. And during that time, I realised that while the science, you can, yeah, there's still things to do in the terms of the science around how the performance of these sort of systems work, it was actually the organisation and the people that the real problem. And when they offered me this PhD to look at why councils seem to be struggling to maintain them, well, it just seemed to be, you know, fate. So I thought, no, I'll do this. And uh, then I ended up here. So the topic, was it more or less chosen for you or did you sort of come up with the topic yourself? No, no, it was, they were already interested in the question. Oh, and they right. needed to find someone silly enough to do it. <laughs> I was <it>. yeah. <laughs> overqualified. Yeah. You're the best man for the job. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, best man for the job, that's right. Take us back, introduce this PhD. Let's, uh, let's take this plane off. Okay, well, look, I think something I'd really like to say before I do that is sometimes sociology and social sciences get, you know, they get not a hard time necessarily, but they get um, misunderstood or they're not considered, you know, they're considered as uh, separate. But I actually started in, you know, with, in the sciences and the engineering side of things and realised that they were actually just as important, if not as important. So that's why I did the PhD, because I thought, you know, it's not the science or the engineering that's the problem and not even close. And when I first started doing the PhD, I was going to just do a simple case of, you know, go out there and do some open questions, send out some questionnaires that allow people to write down, do a few interviews use that to build up what they call a Leichhardt survey and send it out again and then people could choose answers based on the stuff that I'd found out for the open questionnaire. But it didn't actually go that way in the end because I realised that that didn't really tell me anything extra. It just gave me a, a score of what people's opinions were. But the way we ended up going about analysing the data, which was, it sounds fancy, like socio-technical systems theory, it sounds really fancy. It's not 
that complicated. It's the way that human beings and technology interact together to work or, as the case is usually not really work that well. Well, I use this thing called grounded theory to analyse my quantitative data. And it was enormously simple to understand but really powerful. And it's a process of starting down deep in the data and lifting yourself out of the data, going into higher levels of abstraction and concepts. And it provides a way of doing that that allows you to process the data at a subconscious level but also still being grounded in reality. And it was just enormously powerful. And what I found in the end by looking at all the answers, I had 3,000 references, individual references that I'd identified that were useful for my research. I ended up working out that the real problem wasn't actually stormwater control measure maintenance per se, but a problem with the transition from conventional practices of stormwater management, which we've been with us arguably for over, for at least a thousand years, potentially 5,000 years. And this new way of doing stormwater management, which has been with us for about 30 years, which is nothing. And to try and change people's perceptions and the way that we do things after 5,000 years, it's, it's, I think people have seriously underestimated that challenge. Can I ask you, and to explain for the listeners, why, you know, going into it, 5,000 years we've been dealing with stormwater. Well, tell the listeners how we've been dealing with it and that change, if you can, to the way we're dealing with it now. First started doing stormwater, it came about, I think it was the mines that they traced back 5,000 years, I'll have to double check that. But when we started building urban environments, and it was it was a few thousand, it was quite, you know, it was before the Roman times, so that was about two, 3,000 years ago, but before that, we had a problem. When it rained and it hit hard surfaces, you got, instead of the water infiltrating to the ground, it would stay on the surface because you had pavement and other things, hard surfaces. And that, of course, that increased the probability of flooding and high energy flows through your, um, through your streets. So quite sensibly, they built drains and sent it off into the nearest waterway or the lowest point away from the buildings, which makes really, it's a really good idea. I mean, you don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, you want to get rid of it. And for a very long time when civilizations were quite small compared to the rest of the, you know, the natural world, that wasn't a big deal. But now we're getting to the point where urban environments are getting, um, you know, they, 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 relatively speaking, they, they're taking up a lot more area than they did 5,000 years ago. And the kinds of pollutants and things that are coming off the surface, uh, the, the pavements of urban areas and commercial areas, are far more destructive than they were even, you know, a few hundred years ago. So it was those conventional practices that were quite necessary that have ironically, well, not ironically, but paradoxically, I guess, now becoming a bit of a problem because they're destroying our waterways by tearing them apart with high energy flows of water. And they're also introducing a whole bunch of nutrients and pollutants into those waterways which is, makes them unpleasant from an urban aesthetics point of view, but also damages their ecology, which has all sorts of problems, you know, creates situations and problems with agriculture and uh, irrigation and access to clean water and, and fisheries and all of that. So this is why uh, this sustainable or alternative approach to stormwater, the water-sensitive urban design approach, has come about. In Australia, it's only been really about 30 years, and if you look at the Victorian case, it didn't really kick off until 2006 when they changed the, their planning provisions and made it compulsory or virtually compulsory. Well, that's what I was going to say is, you know, the 30-year mark, what were the triggers? I mean, I've heard that really, and, and, and from what I've seen, it really started off because of the Sydney Olympics here in New South Wales, you know, sort of pre-2000. So interesting to hear you say sort of Melbourne 2006 from your research, but, you know, you've just said 30 years. What was the big driver for, you know, whether it's Victoria, whether it's 
New South Wales, why did we all of a sudden go, we give a shit? Well, in New South Wales, it's, the Sydney Olympics certainly did kick it off here. And I remember that they produced a, a short-term funding program for all the councils to develop stormwater management plans, which then never got implemented, but that's another story. But if you really want to trace it back, it goes back to the US into the 1930s-ish when they had a number of incidents with the destruction of catchments due to the removal of vegetation and things like that and really came through the United States and uh, their pollution control legislation and protection of waterways. And it was born from that. And then over the ensuing decades, you had research, you know, universities and research bodies looking at ways of how do we reduce the impact of, you know, high energy stormwater flows on urban waterways. And you get to a point where the technologies are good enough to start implementing and people still care and there's community, external community pressure to look after waterways and it gives governments an option to address those concerns. But sadly, when you're dealing with these sorts of technological transitions, they're not directly related to each other, so it causes all sorts of problems. So, for example, an iPhone, they took off hugely, but that was driven by demand. People wanted to use it. They knew what it was and they wanted to use it. The problem that stormwater control measures or wussed faces is that it's not a response to demand but a response to pressure. People may get upset about dirty waterways, but nobody gets upset about stormwater control measures not being implemented or looked after because they don't even know what they are. That's a bit of a conundrum for, you know, sustainable stormwater management. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think I think Jeremy's right. Like in Australia, pre-Olympics, there was growing concern around what what are the uh, visitors going to think when they see a whole bunch of litter in our waterways around the the Sydney Olympic Park area and also Sydney Harbour, recognising there was a whole bunch of water sports like boating, triathlon, etc. At that event, so there was a whole, there was a real push for litter capture devices or gross pollutant traps, and there's actually quite a fair few around Sydney Olympic Park. What we also saw was some other sort of jurisdictions, you know, nominally putting in different gross pollutant traps at a few different locations. But what really sort of, I guess, drove water-sensitive urban design, we should clarify what water-sensitive urban design is. It's basically urban design that is water-sensitive. So there's a recognition, there was a growing recognition that urbanisation and urban development has an impact on the health of, of our waterways whether that be flow or increased flow frequencies and volumes or increased pollutant loads, like Andrew mentioned before. Um, so there's a growing recognition of we've got to do something, but there was an introduction of legislation to actually mandate it for new development. So in Queensland and Victoria and the various parts of uh, New South Wales uh, and also in Tasmania, it's a mandatory requirement if you are doing new development, if you are developing an area of land above a certain threshold, you've got to put in water-sensitive urban design measures uh, to reduce those pollutant loads but also try and slow down and ideally capture some of that stormwater runoff to reduce the sort of impacts that downstream environment. So with that introduction in legislation, all of a sudden we started seeing a lot more of these water-sensitive urban design assets being put in the ground and not just gross pollutant traps but things like wetlands, uh, what we call bioretention systems or rain gardens, swales, like a lot of vegetated assets which basically are trying to slow down water and remove pollution. And in the, in the case of gross pollutant traps, yeah, there's a real focus on trying to capture those gross pollutants. But with that introduced uh, legislation and subsequently all these assets get, putting in the, get put in the ground, honestly, here, there and everywhere, and we're probably looking at, we don't really know, there's probably tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of these assets around Australia now. What we, what a lot of, I guess, areas didn't anticipate was all of these assets, lo and behold, need to be maintained. 
oh, the gross pollutant trap is like an underground garbage bin. They're really good at capturing garbage, but that garbage doesn't just magically disappear. It needs to be manually removed. And that's where I think a lot of local governments uh, really didn't get their head around very early on. And subsequently, there's a whole bunch of these assets in the ground that I'm not sure. Are, and like getting back to Andrew's thesis, are these things being maintained? Anecdotally, we hear a lot of reports and we see isolated, uh, I guess, evidences of, yeah, these assets are, aren't getting maintained most of the time. Unless you've got data, you're just someone with an opinion. So obviously, your, your PhD, the first question of your PhD really focuses on answering that question. With all these devices in the ground in Victoria, are they being maintained? Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would use the term that they're being significantly under-maintained. It's been a couple of years now since I collected my data, but I wouldn't. I, I suspect that things wouldn't have changed much. Uh, I actually went out to nine councils for this particular research question. And of those nine councils that agreed to participate, when it came to the crunch, only three of those councils were able to provide me with a decent data set of the condition of their assets. And only one of those councils was able to provide me with a decent data set for how full their respective GPTs were. Bear in mind, these are leading councils. These are not randomly chosen councils. These are leading councils. So most of them had no idea. Those that did provide me with data, and the one that did for GBT specifically, they did their condition assessment because they wanted to actually find out where their assets were because they weren't even sure where they were. So it wasn't a routine program. It was a one-off. And they found at the time of inspection that only 11% of their gross pollutant traps were actually in a condition ready to accept the next storm. A large proportion were full and almost half were so full they were actually buried as if they'd never been maintained since installation. And some of those had to be decommissioned because they were now effectively destroyed or they were the wrong size. The data I collected and the data I wasn't able to get access to tells me, you know, on the balance of probabilities, it's very likely that these stormwater control measures are being significantly under-maintained and to the point where one would have to question their long-term performance and whether the investment was worth it in the first case. Mm. It's a terribly sad story. It's not something I really like to say yeah. because I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I support these, this initiative to try and improve the way we manage our waterways. For those obviously couldn't see me, I'm walking around shaking my head. I mean, Andrew and I work together, but, you know, for me to hear that from your mouth to my ears and that's, that's going on and you're someone who's really knowledgeable in this field, we know from what we see. 
we 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 know we we've got enough data, and you go well. What's the point then? You know, what is the point of putting these devices in? And why is it that people forget about gross pollutant traps when they put it in? And I'll put it out to you too. It's because you put it in, it doesn't do anything, so you can't look at it, you can't turn it on, you can't go, oh, look what it does. You you walk away from it and you go. See you in six months. You know, like, you think about something else, mechanical, that's underneath, pump or something, you go, bang, it's on, you know, all of a sudden I've got to go back and maintain the pump. You know, because of its passive nature in, in dealing with water, whether it's a gross pollutant trap or or the way we get our water off with water-sensitive vermin design, you know, and this is going to lead into your PhD, why don't people value gross pollutant traps and water quality? I think you hit nail ahead in terms of gross pollutant traps. There's a, there's a few factors. Number one, it's lack of visibility. They are literally out of sight, out of mind. They look like you walk over the top of it, you wouldn't even know it was there. Most of the asset owners don't know they're there. Out of sight, out of mind. Number two, there's no value put to them. So they're just not valued. The, the function of these assets is not valued. So why bother putting any value towards maintaining or making sure that they function properly? So in terms of when I say value, I mean resources, money. Everything costs money. The maintenance of these assets costs money, yet they provide a really important function and a maintenance of these assets is, is important. But if you don't value them, it's like having a car. If you, if you don't like your car, you, you don't maintain it. You know, just let it sit in the back paddock and rust away. Whereas if you're sort of a, a real you know, car buff, you know, like you with your uh, uh, vintage Valiant in your garage, you polish it and you, you take it for a spin and you, you know, polish the leather and you whatever, all that sort of stuff. It is a V8 1971 Valiant license plate Val I've had it for 20 years. She runs on 85% ethanol. She is, she's awesome. Third reason is councils are just under-resourced. They don't have enough money to do everything. And unfortunately, they do need to prioritise. And given the first two factors, the maintenance of devices such as gross pollutant traps is considered a low priority. So subsequently, there's very little resources and money uh, allocated to them. And often, they just don't get maintained as a result. They're just a line item on a ledger. It's just, oh, I've got to spend X amount or, or ideally nothing at all. Uh, but no one appreciates what they actually do. Yeah, well, look, you've hit on some of the major points, but I, the only thing I have to add to that is that when I, I think you guys, one of you poor sides at least has actually seen my presentation, I draw a direct line from the invisibility of stormwater control measures, and they're invisible for good reason. One of the reasons is, is that they're meant to add aesthetic value to our urban environment. So they're made, they're either underground like your GBTs and out of sight, or they're made to look like a garden or a nice water body, and that's a really good thing. They're also designed to bypass when they fail or their performance is reduced because you don't want these, these you know, types of assets or infrastructure to cause a flood problem. So when they start to reduce in their performance or they fail, they bypass straight into the drainage system and you will never know. There's a direct link between that, as far as I can ascertain from my, from my data, the data that I collected, to the community's lack of awareness. Now, people do care about waterways. There's no doubt about that. But they just have no idea what these things are. You can go up to someone and say, mate, you know what a road is? And they probably think you're insulting them but because it's obvious. And people use roads. They drive on roads. If there's a pothole on the road and they hit it, they know who to call, the council, or they can comp- complain to their local MP. But nobody knows that these devices even exist, let alone that they, that they protect their waterways. And because 
local councils and state government, democratic organisations, their job is to deliver what the people want. And I can guarantee you that nobody, almost nobody, in fact, it'd be so negligible that you can pretty much say nobody is going in there and going, I'm going to vote today on a lack of maintenance of GPTs. Mm-hmm. They're going to vote, they're voting on rates, services and other things and libraries and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. They're not voting for stormwater control measures. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, the councillors don't make it a high priority in the council. Mm-hmm. That is the crux, the problem. Yeah. Yeah. People do want clean waterways, so democratically it should be done, but when you've got councils that have been uh, taking on more and more responsibility, less and less funding, it's pretty obvious where they're going to start cutting it. And potholes, mate. People are more concerned with potholes uh, hmm. than they are with, with with GPT maintenance. And potentially even waterway protection. Quite frankly, 100%. People want, I mean, I mean, I don't even know what the p- political line is, but it's roads, rail, and buses, or, uh, you know, like what gets yeah. you votes is what you're going to campaign to make your, your constituent better, you know? Yeah. Like it's 101. And look, countless surveys, and we've done uh, some of our own, but uh, the Queensland State Government and others have, have done various community surveys actually outlining, I'm oh, sorry, trying to identify what the community are concerned about. And time and time again, the number one concern of the Australian community, Australian public, is actually marine and waterway health. It's bizarre. Like, I wouldn't even thought I'd put marine and waterway health as my number one concern. But it actually generally is higher than everything you'd think of. Jobs, traffic, water supply, uh, housing affordability, everything we hear in the press, marine and waterway health is, is time and time again considered the number one concern. And also, letter is invariably the highest environmental concern in all the sort of various community surveys. But the big thing is the vast majority of the community uh, don't make the connection between the health of their waterways and stormwater. No. Like, no. Most people just don't, they haven't been taught or haven't been educated. And in the absence of this podcast, who else in the, in the sort of media is actually talking about the impacts of stormwater runoff on waterway health? Well, there wasn't a guy from the ABC. <laughs> I just let that pause because I was going, just the three of us, wicked. No, no, but but I'll add to this. Yeah. When life's bad, you go to the water. When life's good, you go to the water. We're so we're – water, we're all water babies. You think about it, you've got a, you know, a hot date when you're 20 years old, what do you do? You get a bottle of wine, you go down the beach, you look at the water. You're surfing, you're diving. I mean, we're, we're, we are 90% water. You know, but why we don't associate the way the water comes off our urban environment going back 5,000 years to pre-Roman and the way we built up surfaces, you know, why is that is is because we're not making that connection. And that's where we go with you. I mean, Andrew, why why are we not making that connection? Before you answer this question, though, it's worth pointing out this isn't just an academic sort of, uh, you know, problem. When we don't maintain these assets, a whole bunch of litter, plastic and other pollutants go straight into our waterways. We, we did some calcs uh, at the start of last year, I think. What would we actually achieve if we actually maintained just our existing assets in Australia? We think by just maintaining our existing stormwater treatment assets, we would stop around 500 wheelie bins of plastic going into the strain oceans and waterways every day. That's 500 equivalent size wheelie bins full of plastic going into the Australian ocean and waterways every day just by maintaining our existing infrastructure. So it's a huge problem that has huge ecological consequences, economic impacts, and Jeremy touched on the social and and mentally and aesthetic 
and sort of mental health benefits of our waterways. All of these things are impacted when we actually don't appropriately protect them through appropriate stormwater management. Like I've heard, uh, you know, out of sight, out of mind for 15 years. You know, it's it's almost, and Brad and I, we've been in, in, in you know, presentations where people laugh about it. You, you know, like, is it is it our fault? I think it lands with us, and it's very interesting that you say from your research, it's not the it's not the products, it's the organisations that are running the products. And I think it relates back to Andrew's original point when he first started talking about his PhD. He's he's an engineer, but he's actually realised that this problem is very much in the social sciences. Yeah, and, yeah. and you think about all the people in, in the stormwater and other sort of in this wider industry, we have a very engineering mindset yeah you know the engineers at university they think the social sciences are are just the easy degree easy courses and they just you know waste of time whereas reality is most of our engineering problems are due to social challenges really and and they need a really good understanding of of society to actually appropriately solve them i'm going to say something controversial here and i'll say the reverse is actually true i've been in i started off as an engineer and a scientist working in the very technical side of things like the social sciences are much harder mm. when it comes to trying to address the problem so much so that um, I often wonder if we have what it takes. I mean, it's not just stormwater you see this. I mean, climate change is another yeah. example if I don't get in trouble for saying climate change. But um, it's these social problems that people have got, we're going to have to start dealing with because the world population is getting so large and technology is changing the way it is that if we don't start facing reality and dealing with the social side, Mm. not just the technical side, then we're not going to solve these problems, mm. and that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be, pro- there's going to, you know, there's going to be lots of consequences, much worse than the bushfires are just the beginning. Mm-hmm. Sorry to be uh, negative, but it's, it's a worry. Yeah, look, it's, it's really interesting. Like, uh, I, 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 I mean, Jeremy and myself often have this conversation around the whole vegan movement and how, as an environmental engineer, I look at the whole animal agriculture industry and I go, it's a no-brainer. It's so simple. We don't need to eat meat and animal products having a plant-based diet so much healthier for you and better for the environment, et cetera, and, and cheaper and all that sort of stuff, and, and it'll make you live longer and be better looking and sexier and all that sort of stuff. But most people still want, want to reduce their animal product intake. And you're like, hang on, why not? Why are you guys crazy? You know, and you, and you do often come across as just angry vegan. But I honestly think that that's probably my engineering mindset in terms of oh, I've got a great solution, but how come you guys aren't? I just don't get why the whole world just doesn't become vegan. And, and Jeremy laughs at this and goes, oh, there's a, bloody, there's a reason for this. And I still I still come back to it. I, go, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand. Maybe I need to do a sociology degree to get my head around it. Well, the reason <laughs> what I try to touch on with the fact that, you know, for 5,000 years we've been drain, drainage in a certain way. Mm. And... We say, who's to blame for these problems? Well, it's none of us and all of us, and that's a yeah. terrible thing to say. But nobody's actually to blame, but it is a problem that we all contribute to, mm. but it's also a function of the nature of human beings. Mm. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't go too much into this, but I did do a bit of evolutionary biology. <laughs> Just and, well, um, on the odd Sunday? <laughs> on a Sunday, you know. No, it was part of my degree. I can't believe you've got a life partner, let alone a wife. <laughs> I just did a bit of that on a Sunday. A bit of quantum physics, but we won't go there. But <laughs> the um, let the atom on, on last last Wednesday. Understand <laughs> the theory of relativity? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'll come up with another theory. You know, <laughs> <laughs> change the world. <laughs> you know, there's no point in 
I can understand people's frustration, but the reality is, and one of the things I try to get across very badly in my presentation at the end, is that if you want to change practices that have been around for a thousand years, then get ready to take time and get ready to put the effort in. You're not going to solve it through market forces, you know? You're not even going to solve it directly through democratic processes either. I like to call this democratic failure, where people talk about market failure. I'm talking about democratic failure. Because not because de- democracy is bad, it isn't, but because it's limited. And if you want to deliver a democratic outcome, then sometimes you've got to use punitive methods to do it. And sometimes you've got to be in regulation. And the other thing you've got to do is normalise it. So you go, I just Google why you guys are crapping on, right? I was Googling um, <laughs> drainage and Australian standards. And you can get a standard on how to do conventional drainage. There are no Australian standards. Well, I might be correct on this. There might be some creeping in now. But for the longest time, there was no Australian standards that actually dealt with water-sensitive urban design. And that's what we call normalisation. And if you want to start changing things, then funding, for example, in Victoria has gone all to construction, mostly construction with a little bit of capacity building, but niche sort of you know, clear water which specifically looks at it for the industry. But you don't find it in tertiary education programs and vocational education. You don't find it in undergraduate courses. You might be able to do a master's course in water sensitive urban design. And you don't find funding being put to places like the stormwater industry associations mm. to give them the strength and, and the funding to go out there and engage with the communities of practice and start building these standards and guidelines and working with researchers. Until we do that, you won't see any change. And it mm. won't be something that you can fix overnight either. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. The episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.